So we're going to be a little bit in Isaiah 44 and a little bit of Isaiah 45. And so let me just set this up just a little bit. And we're not going to cover the whole, the, all those chapters. Uh, we're in, this is a section of Isaiah that uh, a lot of it's looking forward to the coming Messiah. These are, you know, in Isaiah, the servant passages. It, it's in a section where they're the servant passages, kind of looking forward to the coming of Messiah. It's all that's wrapped up in here. This is kind of in a part of Isaiah that's looking really to the future more, you know, I, I tell you a lot of times that not everything that's prophetic is predictive, but this is kind of predictive stuff, looking forward to the future. But it, but it shares something about God, and, and it shares something about the way God reveals himself. And really, it, it's not what, we don't, we don't look at the Old Testament and see what the Old Testament tells us, or what the writers tell us. We really understand it's what God reveals through them. It's what God reveals through them. And God uses all the people who write Old and New Testament in different ways to, to put forth and cast forth his revelation. But one of the things in the Old Testament, especially, that is so consistent is God's sovereignty over creation and his dislike of idolatry. One of the things that runs through the Old Testament, I tell you all the time, the Old Testament is a book that looks forward to something. It looks forward to coming to Messiah. Old Testament promises, New Testament fulfills. It's all coming to Jesus. But in the course of doing that, God is working through a group of people he pulled aside. And the reason he pulled them aside is so that they can get ready for a Messiah who will come that will bring people back to God. And the fundamental problem in the life of the people is not just that they've rebelled against God, but the classic example, the epitome, epitome, the high point of that rebellion is the worship of gods that don't exist. To replace gods of their own imagination, or replace the one true God with the gods of their own imagination, and the idols that they create. And that is the ultimate sin. I've shared this with you all the time. There is sin that, some sin is worse than others. You don't believe me, go to the Old Testament. It is some sin worse than others. Why was Israel, why did, why did Israel be destroyed ultimately and put into judgment? Because they quit worshiping God and worshiped false gods. And the amazing thing is God brought pagans to bring that about. The judgment of God came through pagans who worshiped the other gods. It was the sovereignty of God always at work. So when God rescues Israel out of Egypt, they're in Egypt, you know, the book of Exodus, they're in Egypt, and he sends Moses to get them. And I'm going to deal with this a, a lot next summer. The summer of 2024, I'm preaching from, I think, uh, you know, the early part of, part of Exodus, There's two, and then I'm doing uh, the deep fries on the second part of Exodus, I'm doing all up to chapter 20. But one of the things that, that, that exists, and people sometimes don't get this in the book of Exodus, the battle is not between Moses and Pharaoh. That is not the battle. The battle is between Pharaoh and Yahweh. Pharaoh considers himself a god. The Egyptians have all these gods. In fact, the ten plagues, all of them is God eliminating the deities that don't exist of Egypt. All ten plagues deal with the deity of Egypt, the deities of Egypt, and God is just eliminating them one by one until he gets to Pharaoh, who doesn't have the power over life and death, even over his own children. And God rescues his people. And then he gives them ten words, ten, ten commandments that reflect what it means to be his. It is not, do these things and you will be mine. It is, you are mine do these things. I preached a whole series on the Ten Commandments my second summer, and that was the main point. It was a series called Ten. That the Ten Commandments for us 
is not do this to be God's people. It is we do this because we belong to God through faith in Christ. And the very first thing he says, he says, I am the God who brought you and delivered you out of Egypt. You will have no other gods before me. And secondly, you'll make no image of any God, including him. And then later on, in Exodus chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5, and then to add emphasis to it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, I, the Lord your God, am but one. It's not that I am one among many and the chief of many. I am the one and only God. None other exists. And that is why the sin of idolatry is so important to understand that its consequences. By the way, I hear people all the time, and I've made comment with, with this with several other people uh, that I've talked to recently, about people today talking about, you know, this is an idol and that is an idol. Your pride is not an idol. Greed is not an idol. Lust is not an idol. An idol is something you create, you bow down and worship. Now, if you bow down and worship money, okay, it's an idol, but I don't think any of you actually bow down and worship money. An idol is something you bow before in worship. Understand that. It's a critical distinction. Now, pride and greed and lust, they're all sins. I get it. And it doesn't diminish what they are. But get it right. They're not idols. You know, idolizing an athlete. You know, we'll see a draft tomorrow. That's not, that's not the same thing. American Idol. You know, what some of you watch, they still have that show on. Some of you still watch that tonight. Bachelorette, you know, Bachelor, all that stuff. None of that's, none of that's that. An idol is something you bow before and worship. That's, it's an important distinction to understand. Because otherwise you trivialize an idol. If you make, you know, if you make, you know, your pride, you know, your idol is your pride, well, then you trivialize what God is talking about. Isaiah 44. Verse 9. I, I love it. I was reading this yesterday. This hit me. Those who fashion a graven image are, are all of them futile. Now, understand, the Hebrew, Hebrew here can be rough sometimes, so your versions may have different things, a little bit different. And their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see or know, so they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a God or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves, let them stand up, let them tremble, let them together be put to shame. Those who fashion a graven image, verse 9, all of it's futile. There is no profit in it, and even their own witnesses put to shame, which means this. They're the ones, who, who gives testimony to the value of an idol? It is the one who made it up and created it. There is no value in anything other than God. All other concepts of deity are the results of the sinfulness of our imaginations. Today we live in an age, and this is so important that you get this, where people constantly say this, that you can just worship any God that you want. Whatever works for you works. There's, and I did a lot of this in January, and I talk about this all the time, or relativism and syncretism, but really it's the idea 
that your religion can be whatever works for you. And this past Easter, I, I tell you this all the time, there are people who, who will say there's more than one way to get to God. Even though as a Christian you follow a Jesus who said, I am the only way, they're going to argue with Jesus because somehow they know more than Jesus. And there's more than one way. The validation of their faith is their own testimony. People who have rebelled against God are creating the gods and goddesses and religions of their own imagination and the moral authority to create these gods and goddesses and religions are them. They're the validation. The idea of something objective is gone. The idea that God reveals, and that's how we learn, is gone. The idea that there's a book that has God's revealing of himself to us is gone. And I tell you this because you need to understand this. These are not people who believe the God we believe in, and basically, you know, say the Bible's a good book, but struggle with sin. These are people whose worldview, whose entire concept of deity is different than ours. And I deal with this quite a bit. And I hear people say, I remember growing up, but I always hated this phrase. I hated it. Well, if you're going to help someone come to Christ, you got to find common ground. No, you don't. I don't want to find common ground in what my beliefs are. Because normally that means I have to concede something. I concede nothing. I compromise nothing. I concede no point of faith. I love them. I encourage them. I concede nothing. And when I deal with the world around me today, and I talk with people, and I've talked recently with friends of mine about their beliefs, and I just flat tell them, what you believe is wrong. I'm not conceding anything. They talk about love. Your concept of love is wrong. You and I don't talk about the same thing when we talk about God's love. Your understanding of what it means to have faith is different than mine. I concede no point. I don't say, well, we're both talking about love. We're both talking about faith. No, we're not. Because what they're talking about comes from the futility of their imagination. And I concede nothing. And I aggressively love them and aggressively confront their false reality. Not in the ugly, I don't yell, I don't scream. I just tell them, it's not the same. Because what they create is of no profit. Let's read on, because this is amazing what Isaiah writes. Get this, verse 12. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with a strong arm. It's the same man who gets hungry and his strength fails and drinks the water becomes weary. In other words, he, he, he takes iron, he shapes it into a tool, and then the idea is, which is not explicitly said, he shapes that same iron into an idol. He creates a God, and then he is a man, though, who at the end of all his work gets thirsty and weary and his strength fails. He's worked so hard to create his idol that he's master over and then his strength fails. Another shapes wood. He extends measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works with planes and outlines it with the compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man that it may sit in a house. So he takes his word, his wood. He takes hours creating an idol that's beautiful and he puts it on a mantle of his house that he created so he can worship it. Well, when you put it that way, it sounds pretty silly, doesn't it? 
Verse 14. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of the forest. He plants the fir, then he makes it grow. He takes a tree, he plants it, waters it, makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and he warms himself and he makes a fire to make bread. So he takes a tree, cut it down, creates a fire, warms himself and makes bread. He also makes a god and worships it and makes it to a graven image and fall down before it. So I cut the tree in half. I take half the tree. I burn it for warmth and fire. I take the other half of a tree and make it a god. I bow down and worship and say that God created that tree. It's an absurdity. It's a futility. Half of it he burns over the fire. This half he eats meat as he roasts and he says and is satisfied. He warms himself and says, aha, I am warm, I've seen a fire. But the rest of it he makes it to a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worship it and prays, deliver me, for you are my god. Verse 18, they do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so they cannot see in their hearts. So they cannot comprehend. In other words, God has blinded them because of their rebellion. He's given them, in other words, God has given them over. Now I'll explain this one minute. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I burned half of it in the fire and I baked bread over it. I roast meat and eat it. I make the rest into an abomination. I fall down to a block of wood. I love that. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver himself, nor say, is there not a lie in my right hand, that he holds the idol. In other words, he doesn't even, he's become so numb to it that he's become ignorant to what he's done. Throughout the Old and New Testament, we're told God gives people over to the depravity of their souls. He did it to Israel. He's warning to Israel. Remember, Isaiah is prophesying, right? He's, he, now, he's doing it in Judah, but he's doing it right about the time the northern kingdom of Israel is all about to be taken over by the Assyrians because the northern kingdom has done the same thing in worship idols. <clears throat> and he's saying the futility of what they've done. God gives them over. You want them, you got them. In God delivering Israel from Egypt. We see repeatedly in Exodus that Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened his heart. And people struggle. God hardened his heart. Well, but it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. One of the things that we have to remember is Pharaoh thought himself deity. He thought himself to be a God. He wasn't just a man. He was God, a God. And he thought he was more powerful than the God of Israel. Before Moses ever confronted Pharaoh, his heart was hard. And God gave him chance after chance to repent. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. But at the same time, God gave him over to that hard heart. He said, if that's what you want, that's what you got. In Christ, there is an opportunity for people 
to have faith. If they reject Jesus, God still gives people over to the hardness of their heart. And many of the things we see in the world today that you and I may think are absurd are people who rebelled against God and created their own self-imposed religion where they are the authority. It is simply God giving them everything they want. You want this? I'll let you have it. And all that goes with it. The solution isn't putting the Ten Commandments back in schools. And the solution isn't praying in schools. That was never the answer. The solution is Jesus Christ and the people who know Jesus is us. Us sharing Jesus is the solution. First, chapter 45. Isaiah looks into the future and sees a man named Cyrus. Cyrus will be the king of Persia from about 600, give or take, B.C. to about 530. It will be Cyrus who will defeat the Babylonians. Now, here's what happens. Isaiah's writing in the 8th century. Let's just say 750, give or take. In 720, 742, Tiglath of the Assyrians will begin his assault on the northern kingdom. By 722, they will cease to exist. In the next century, in the 7th century, in the middle parts of it, towards the end of it, a guy named, the Babylonians will rise up, and eventually a guy named Nebuchadnezzar will defeat the Assyrians, and then he will defeat the nation of Judah because of their idolatry. And by 587, 587 B.C., it, Judah is completely in exile. Then, at about the, uh, a few decades later, Cyrus comes along, the Persians come along, and they defeat the Babylonians, and Cyrus and his followers allow, his kings that succeed him, allow Judah and the Israelites to go back to the promised land. Some of them go back to Jerusalem, reestablish the temple, paving the way for the Messiah to one day come back. With that in mind, here's an interesting thing. Chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. He calls Cyrus his anointing. This is a pagan. Cyrus is a pagan. He says, whom I have taken by my right hand, to, look at this, to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you, this is God, and make the rough places smooth. I will shatter the doors of bronze and cut through their iron bars. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hidden wealth of secret places, so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name. And he does this, verse 4, for the sake of Jacob, my servant, and Israel, my chosen one, I have called you by your name. I have given you a title of honor. Get this. Though you have not known me. I am the Lord, and get this, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. 
I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun, there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Trip down, O heavens, from above. Well, I'm going to stop there. So here's, here's what God, Yahweh is saying. Isaiah is saying because God's inspiring. He's looking to the future. I'm going to deliver you, my people. I'm going to deliver you. And I'm going to use a pagan to do it. And it's not, it's not his gods and goddesses that do it. It's no other god. It's just one god. It's just me. I'm it. I'm, this is what God is saying. I'm going to use a pagan king who does not worship me, who does not know me, who does not love me, who worships gods that he and others create from their own imagination. I'm going to take him, I'm going to anoint him, and I'm going to use him so that I, the only God, can keep my promise and deliver you back to your land. So the promise that I made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to David, I'm going to keep my word. And I'm going to do it, ultimately. And you read it in a few chapters. So a servant can come along who will deliver everyone. Not just you. Everyone. This is the amazing thing about God. This is when I read this, this is what struck me. God is so sovereign so powerful and so in control that he can take the very people who reject him and create their own gods and goddesses. He can take those very people and at some point use them to bring about his plan for a Messiah who will be the very one who will offer salvation to those people down the line, but those people who create their own gods. As I was thinking about this, it just struck me, and I have to remember, in the world in which I live, in the culture in which I do, and I do battle, so do you. We don't know how God in Christ will work in their lives to bring about their salvation. We don't know what their circumstances may be. We don't know what their backgrounds may be. And the fact of the matter is, God can take people who reject him, who have nothing to do with him, and at some point along the way, he can take them and have other people come to faith through the women and men who once rejected him. That God is so sovereign and so in control, there is no way he'll ever be defeated. And I think sometimes we think things are helpless and hopeless. And for a long time, when you read all the Old Testament and the stuff between the Old and New that lasted 450 years, 
things always did look hopeless and helpless. The whole time, God is just working as he chooses, as he manipulates and moves to get everything in place. And nowadays, he works at a rapid rate. He works at an accelerated rate to advance the message of Christ. And I say that because I think in the battle with the culture that we find ourselves with, we need to understand where they're coming from. And we need to understand, it's not, you know, we hear people say sometimes, they don't need to understand, they're just, they're just sinners. They're all sinners are the same. No, it's a different way of thinking. And I need to understand the way that's going in their minds so that I can confront them in a loving way, but confront them with truth. And there, there's only one way to God, that's through Jesus Christ. Never can see that. But I have to understand that how God helps people come to faith may not be in ways that I'm always used to or understanding. But the bottom line is they got to come to Jesus. You can't compromise morality. You can't compromise truth. You can't compromise to clear what you can't compromise anything. You don't ever think, I'll never say that. But you still have to see that God can work in ways that we don't understand. And it's some interesting thing. So, uh, when was it? Monday. I get a phone call from a friend of mine in San Antonio. She's with another friend. And the second friend is been in a really, really, really bad place for a long, long time. And then a few years back, somehow came to Jesus. And we all grew up together in high school. And so friend number one is taking friend number two to something. And um, um, <clears throat> so they're calling me to tell me. So I had, you know, I had basically helped financially friend number two for a period of time. Debbie and I have helped. And I have helped. And it's been pretty anonymous, but, but friend number two for somehow found out, whatever. Her life was so miserable. Her life was so broken. They call me, and she's talking about, I can't even understand her, because she's talking so fast and so excited, all the things that God had done in her life. In the car, I'm on call, I'm, I'm driving in my car, speakerphone's on. No, it's not on, because my mother-in-law's in the car, so I got it up to my ears, but, it, uh, but I'm not breaking any laws doing that. They're on speakerphone, and I'm just sitting there thinking, Lord, you know, it's good. And when it's over, all I can think of, it's amazing what God did in this girl's life. This woman's life. She's my age. She's not a girl. I still think of her as a girl in high school. Her life was a living hell. And before some of us ever came along, God did things to completely change her life. In every minute of her life, that's what my other friend number one tells me this, almost every minute of her life, she's praising God for what God has done to change her life. She's broke. She's destitute. She's medically a wreck. She's mentally a wreck because of all the years of what she did. All she can talk about is how God changed her life. And I, that story, and then I read this, and it just sometimes really hits me. God can do things no one thinks will ever happen. 
Our task is to let him use us and never give up and never concede truth and never get the idea that someone can't be saved. All those things have to work together, but they all have to work. And then you get phone calls from people you haven't talked to in a long, long time. And they spend five minutes without taking a breath praising Jesus because he saved their life when their life was a living hell. And we can never forget that's what he does.